When your life is thrown a curveball and you lose your husband at 47 years of age, what then? What about the future? Kim Sorrell began journaling after being diagnosed with breast cancer and just four months later her husband Steve was told he had pancreatic cancer. Six weeks later Kim held him as he took his last breath. If you have suffered loss, you must listen to Kim's story of survival during the dark moments in life, and you will be encouraged today. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Kim Sorrell is a writer, speaker, entrepreneur, the director of a humanitarian organization, activist, mother, grandmother, oh, and I love the next two, lover of all people, and black licorice. <laughs> Welcome, Kim. Thank you so much, Carol. <laughs> it's a joy to be here with you. All right, so let's start with your backstory. Tell us whatever you would like to share about what happened. Sure. Well, uh, I'll start with I was going to be the first woman president. That was my goal okay. when I was in high school. And I had my life laid out. I knew where I wanted to go to school, what I needed to do. And I figured out a way that I thought I could get there. And I wasn't sure that a husband and kids would fit into the equation. But I knew that if I ever met a man, he had to have two things. He had to be over six foot tall because my five foot nothing mom married a short man. And I wanted my kids to have a chance as a might. And he had to be really good looking. So he just good in my wedding pictures. So I was obviously a very deep thinker. And <laughs> May- sorry. <laughs> That's right. So then May of my senior year in high school, I was playing pool at the local bowling alley. And this tall, dark, handsome man came into the room and stole my heart. And 10 days after I met him, I asked him to marry me. And he said, yes. Oh, my word. (laughs) Yeah, we got married a little less than a year later. And he was definitely the man of my dreams. Uh, He's he was an incredible man. I was so fortunate to have him for a husband. We had kids, grandkids. And We had just become empty nesters. I was so looking forward to that, becoming an empty nester. I don't even know why. I don't know what you do as an empty nester, if you run around the house naked or what it is. I don't know. But whatever it is, I was so looking forward to it. We were so excited. And we love our kids. I mean, it's not that, but man, we were ready for some alone time. I went uh, kicking and screaming to a mammogram. 
because there's no breast cancer in my family. And I just knew that this was a waste of time and the medical community just getting money. And and then they that led to an ultrasound that led to a biopsy. And, and that led to a phone call on a Friday afternoon saying that I have cancer, breast cancer. And they'd call me on Tuesday. And so it's a Friday afternoon. Like I can't ask questions. I can't call back. I can't anything. Just left me with that news. And I called my husband. He was at work. And uh, he was home in a flash and I could, I could, couldn't hardly get out the words when I called him and he was home and he came in and he did the exact right thing. If anybody's wondering, what do you do in this moment? My husband did exactly the right thing. He just held me. He just held me. And we just stood there for the longest time, just holding on to each other. And so then began the journey of breast cancer. So he started having stomach issues like a couple weeks later. And so he went to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, gosh, it's it's just nerves because of what Kim's going through. Just take some Tom's, you know, some Rolade, something. And then he went back two months later and the doctor again said the same thing. Take some Rolade. Really? Yes, but that he would get him into a gastro person. Now, how many years ago was this? Because they do different testing now, correct? You know, I'm not sure what testing they do any differently now. They didn't do any testing, period. You know, his his doctor's appointments, they didn't do anything. So they should have, but they didn't. And, you know, there's some, there's so often, I think when people go, oh my gosh, if they would have just done blood work. Why don't they just do blood work on everybody and check the CA, the CA-125, the cancer markers in your blood? But the reality is most of the people, the high majority of people, it's not going to come up with anything. And so for the low minority of people that it could show something, um, I'm sure they, you know, health insurance probably doesn't want to pay for it (laughs) and whatever. So it just, it doesn't happen. They didn't run any tests at all. No blood work, no anything. But they made him an appointment at this uh, gastro specialist. And it was two months later. And the day after his appointment, I was having a complete hysterectomy because the type of breast cancer I had and a colonoscopy, because that's a place that this kind of cancer likes to travel. And so I, for anybody who's ever had a colonoscopy, you know, you don't leave your house the day before when you're doing the clean out. I couldn't go, you know, many steps away from a bathroom. And so I couldn't go with him to his doctor's appointment. And I'm the mouth. I would have been the one going, run some tests, do something. You know, this is ridiculous. The third time in and do something for this guy and listen to him. He knows that this feels different than any stomach pain he's ever had. So he knows that there's something. So listen to him. Well, he came home from the doctor and said that the doctor uh, told him the same thing that his regular doctor had told him to take some Tums or Rolades. I was so upset. I was so mad, but there was nothing we could do about it. I had surgery the next day. And when I had surgery, they also found bladder cancer during the surgery. And so my recovery was a little different than um, just a complete hysterectomy as if Mm -hmm. that's not enough. And so I'm still in bed uh, watching Grey's Anatomy reruns and wearing (laughs) pants with elastic waist, right? 
And then uh, I woke up, my husband woke up and was just miserable. And he said he'd barely slept that night and, and that he just was miserable. And I said, well, that's it. Go to the ER. They'll run a test. They'll do something. Just go to the ER. Right. So he drove himself to the emergency room. And my husband was a man of rules. There was a rule he was going to follow it. And it probably said no cell phones in the rooms because it was long enough ago that Uh Uh it would have said that. And so his cell phone was not on. And I'm waiting, waiting for a phone call. Finally, he called and he said, "Uh, well, I guess they're going to keep me overnight. And I'm like, keep you overnight? They don't keep anybody overnight. What do you mean they're going to keep you overnight? So I threw on like big girl clothes and got hopped in my car and drove like a crazy woman in my Vicodin-induced state. And I was almost at the hospital when my phone rang again. And he said, "Uh, I guess there's a spot on my liver. I'm like, spot on your liver? What do you mean there's a spot on your liver? I just started bawling and I got to the hospital. I parked. I ran in holding all parts of my body because everything hurt. And I asked where he was. He was behind a curtain. I run back there, tears streaming down my eyes. I grab the curtain and I open it up. And he's just sitting there like nothing's going on. And I'm bawling. And he looked at me and he said, listen, I'm not going to invite you out anymore if this is the way you're going to behave. <laughs> and I said, I said, listen, buddy, you are not allowed to be funny right now. They admitted him and then tests for a few days and whatever. And finally, we got the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, which is not a cancer you ever want to hear. It's uh, not severely treatable, not curable. Um, the if, if you can handle chemotherapy, my husband did one round of chemo. And his numbers were never high enough to do another round. But chemo, if you're able to do it, they said would double whatever life he would have. But when he was diagnosed, the doctor was pretty optimistic as far as length of time. Like he said, you know, if if people live a year with pancreatic cancer, it's a victory. You know, some people will live a little more than a year. But if you live a year, it's a victory. So he said, you are young and you're fit. And so you could definitely beat the odds and live longer than a year. And so that's what we were thinking, you know, that maybe we'd have a year together. And so we were looking ahead, you know, months down the road, birthdays and different things, different celebrations with our kids and talking about what we were going to do. But I was already home recovering. So he just stayed home and we just had the greatest time together. We watched Cash Cab and played some gin rummy and just hung out, watched some movies and uh, just spent time together. And, but we, we just didn't want him to suffer. Pancreatic cancer is supposed to be the most painful cancer. So we had great hospice and he didn't suffer. He didn't. And it, and it wasn't until the morning, six weeks in, he woke up one morning and just was in pain. And it was really the first time because he had morphine. He had things keeping his pain under control. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. He, he, he was great all the way through. So I called the hospice nurse and she came running out and gave him some more morphine. And then we're in my bedroom and he's sitting on the edge of the bed. And I'm holding him from behind because I don't want him to fall off the bed. 
And she's on the phone calling for a hospital bed. I mean, we didn't have any equipment. We had nothing at that time. We, you know, we're still in bed together and mm-hmm. whatever. And I said, guy, do I call my kids? And she said, oh, no, no, no. You got lots of time. You got lots of time. And But I could just feel his agony. And I said, oh. you sure I shouldn't call my kids? And And she said, no, no, no. You've got, you know, weeks, if not a couple months. You know, you don't need to call your kids. Well, I just, the way I was holding him from behind, I could just feel his pain. It's like I was sharing his pain in that moment. And I, I just, I whispered in his ear. I said, baby, just go. And that was it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my word. What gave you the strength to do that? I did. I love that man. Man, I adored that man. And he he was a great husband and a great dad. And uh, we had a lot of fun together. We had, you know, built a whole lot of great memories together. And I just did not want him to suffer. I mean, we knew that it was inevitable. We knew that the cancer was going to take his life. And uh, but suffering through it. And I've seen people, you know, I've had family members, whatever that have lingered for a long time and just suffered for a long time. And we, I just so didn't want that for him. He was nervous about that. He didn't want that. And uh, I just, um, it was just the right time to let him go. Well, I'm sure that the audience is just as touched with that story as I am. And many people are relating, of course, to your story. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to share with the audience steps to making it through a crisis such as this. And also, we're going to talk about your books. We'll be right back. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Kim Sorrell has been sharing her cancer survival story and also what happened when her husband received a diagnosis of cancer just four months later. It is definitely heart-wrenching, but also, as Kim is going to share now, how her life changed and how she has been able to help others as a result of the pain that she went through. So the first thing I would like to ask you, Kim, is your youngest son, Noah. This whole situation pole vaulted him to earn a PhD as a cancer researcher. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, tell tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, well, Noah had, he did, he joined the Navy, was in the Navy, and then uh, did his time and got out of the Navy and was getting his undergrad on the GI Bill. So thank you, everybody, for paying for my son's college. I appreciate that very much. And uh, he knew he wanted to do something in science, but he wasn't quite sure what. And 
when I was diagnosed and then his dad just so close together, he just felt like that is what he needed to do is become a cancer researcher. And so that's that's what he's doing. He actually just got his MD along with his PhD. Oh, wow. So that, yeah. So he can work with people, too. And, yes. And he's made some incredible strides. He's he, uh, Before he got his PhD, in order to get a PhD in cancer research, you have to discover something that has never been discovered before. Oh, interesting. It, yeah. It has to be put before a board. It has to be um, big enough that it's published in a major medical journal. And you have to do all that before you can get your PhD. And it takes time. I mean, it takes a lot of, of time, right? So Noah was published nine times before he got his PhD. He <laughs> did, yeah, he is an overachiever apparently, <laughs> but he also discovered uh, something with research, a way to speed up a certain um, step to, to researching. And it's something that is used in labs worldwide now and uh and it's funny so like harvard flew him out he he's at ut southwestern in dallas great great place he loved the phd program there and um it's just a great institution one of the top cancer research facilities in the world and uh but harvard flew him out and then flew him to germany to their sister place in germany whatever to teach this technique and so it's getting passed on, passed on. And uh, and it's funny because he's run into a couple of times where he's been in somebody else's lab and they're saying, oh, do you know this technique? And they're showing him his technique and he doesn't say anything. He's Aww. like, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's nice. Thanks for showing me. That's awesome. <laughs> Humility. <Yeah>. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And yeah. your other children? I have five. Yeah. And, you know, um, people that have lost somebody and they they have more than one probably have run into the same thing. Everybody handles it a little bit differently. Yes. And so to kind of try to be where they are. And as a mom, I'm thinking yes. I got to be strong for them. Yep. And so then we got to a point where they thought I, I wasn't grieving right. Like there's rules oh, to grieving right. and I wasn't following them. <laughs> And I'm like, oh my word, you know, so it's, it's a tough situation because I'm trying to please them. They're trying to please me. I'm trying to get them through it. They're trying to get me through it. You know, secretly they're talking behind my back and, and saying that I'm living in La La Land. My husband used to say that actually, because I'm very optimistic. My husband was a pessimist. He would say that he was a realist and that I live in La La Land. <laughs> so whatever the truth of the matter is, but it, it is tough uh, navigating all that, you know, with family, with grown children. My kids were all grown and my grandkids were young enough that they don't really remember, you know, didn't really affect them. But um, but my kids, it definitely did and still does. You know, they miss their dad. Of course. It's, I miss them. How long, so how long has he been gone? 14 years. Oh, my word. Wow. I know. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I was in my 40s, and uh, he was 51. Wow. I married an older man. Yeah. Way too young. <laughs> yeah, way too young. Exactly. Way too young. Way too young for me to be wearing black and yes. having six cats and doing needlework. Yes. Yeah, no know, kidding. Whatever. So <laughs> it was interesting to navigate. And when I was finally able physically to go back to work, 
because I still had to get through all my stuff after he passed away. Uh And so when I finally got the, yep, you go, you know, go be you, whatever kind of word, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do because I had businesses, but I had people running them. So I didn't need to go back to my businesses. I was running a nonprofit, but I stepped down from that when I was diagnosed with cancer. And and then I didn't know what I was going to do. And I happened to run into a man who was running a nonprofit organization that my father and I had started 10 years before this. And I said, hey, do you need any help? You know, what about bookkeeping? And he's like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. So January 1st of that year, I started out as a part-time bookkeeper, figuring that I'd figure out my life. And then 12 days later, there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people. Right. So I went from part-time bookkeeper to 24-7. And then within a couple of weeks, I was on the ground. And then I was in Haiti for at least part of every month for the next several years. I I was going back and forth from Michigan, my home okay. town, okay. My, my home state, to and um, Haiti. But I was there more than I was home. Okay, uh, for, okay. So now tell us about your books. The first one, Cry Until You Laugh. I love the title. Share with us. When I was diagnosed, the next day, you know, get the phone call on a Friday. Saturday, I went to the bookstore because I'm thinking there's got to be a book, you know, that will help me with this. And everything was either very medical or very depressing. Hmm. And I thought, I want to know, what does it feel like? What What is it like to go through breast cancer? Are there choices you have to make? You know, I, I knew nothing. And so I started writing really uh, partially as a way to update family and friends. Hey, I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. I've got surgery next week, you know, that kind of thing. But um, it was so therapeutic. And my writing was so much more than just the details of the cancer. Hmm. And so before I knew it, 5,000 people were reading what I was writing. <laughs> and, and I never planned on really putting it into a book. You know, that wasn't my goal, but I was encouraged to do so by several people. And so Cry Until You Laugh is exactly that. It's all the writings that I did during that time. And of course, I was writing still when Steve was diagnosed and right. then when he passed away. And then my last entry in the book actually is Tomorrow I Leave for Haiti. And then, uh, my second book questioned some things after losing Steve. And one of the things I questioned is the real meaning of love because it seems to elude us. You know, I feel like you can put 15 people in a room and get 15 different answers. And, you know, Ed Sheeran sings about it. Nicholas Sparks writes about it, you know, but what is it really? And everybody defines it differently. And I thought, guys, somebody has got to take the bull by the horns and figure this out. So I decided I would dedicate a year dedicate a year. I need to say that one more time because this is so out of my comfort zone, dedicate a year to figuring out the true meaning of love. And I have a hard time going to a restaurant and committing to an entree. (laughs) So committing a year to something was well beyond me, but I just felt like it was something I had to do. And so I took this 2000 year old poem, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. You hear it at weddings a lot. And I decided I would take one word or phrase a month and figure out what is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? And I'll tell you, Carol, the things that I found out blew my mind and rocked my world. Yes, there's so many things about love that, that I never knew. And there's things that 
we're told about love that just are not true. And so there's like myths around love and uh, that need to be not myths anymore. You know, they need to go away. So that I, I was writing while I was doing it, but really for myself, uh, whether it ever got published, whether it ever anything, uh, but it did get published. Love is, is the name of the book, a dark blue cover. And um, it is, changing lives. I mean, I'm getting incredible response from people that marriages staying together and kids that were estranged from their parents and just all kinds of things and different relationships, even like work relationships and uh, neighbor relationships and families that are buying it for their whole family, all their adult kids and getting together every Monday night and talking about a chapter, you know, or whatever. It's it's really been uh, quite a ride, a good experience, because I'm, I am very passionate about getting the word out there about what love truly is. Can you share one of those things and also one of the myths? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So if I only did the first month, I could have stopped right there and it would have changed my life. Love is patient. I went in thinking, I know what patience is. You know, you're not honking your horn if you're stuck in traffic. You're not mad because your six-year-old can't find his shoes and it's time to leave for school, you know, settle down. But love that is patient is entirely different than patient. You put love is or love is not in front of anything and it changes the meaning. So love that is patient, I just believe that you're supposed to love everybody. It's just the way to live. Just love everybody. And accept people for who they are. Everybody gets to be whoever they pick to be. Mm -hmm. We don't control anybody, right? I mean, we only control ourselves. So let people be who they believe they're created to be and let them give you the same the same grace to be who you believe you're created to be. So you love everybody. So you love whoever it is that you're with enough that you recognize that this is the most important moment of your life. What's in the past is in the past and what's in the future is yet to come. This is the moment. And so with that, since it's the most important moment of your life, you are fully engaged and fully present for that person. That is love right, that is patient. Right. Carol, I stunk at this. I was so bad at this. <laughs> I I thought I was engaged, but man, I would be in conversation with somebody thinking about, oh, who's got to go to soccer practice? What am I going to make when I get home for dinner? You know, all the kind of things that go through. I got this meeting going on, the things that go through your head. And I was not engaged. I had to practice and practice and practice this. But when I got it, it changed everything because I actually heard what was being said instead of hearing what I'm assuming is being said based on some label I put on somebody, and love has no labels, by the way, but based on knowledge I have about somebody or whatever, you just make us, I, I was making assumptions about what I thought people were gonna say. And uh, when I fully engaged and stopped and am in the moment, man, I, I wish I would have known this years ago because it is, it's so incredible. It's incredible to be heard. People need right, to be heard. Right, right. Absolutely, right? yes. Yeah, and sometimes we're in such a hurry that we're running from thing to thing, and then we go, oh, no, there's Sandra. Jeez, if she pulls me aside, it's going to be 10 minutes, you know, whatever. But there, she's a person. Life has to be all about people. Relationships are the most important thing. 
So yeah, it might take a minute. You know, some some people you might enjoy talking to more than others, or you have the long-winded friend or whatever. And it's okay to say, hey, I, I really am too busy. The truth is I'm too busy right now. But I'm I will call you. I promise I'll call you, you know, or and then hold to hold yourself to it. But uh when you're there and and you're listening, truly listening, people know that you're truly listening. People know that. People feel hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's a whole different ball game. And so it yeah, so even if I would have stopped there, love is patient, be fully there, fully engaged. People don't care about how much you know. They want to know how much you care. Uh, I love that. I love that. So that yeah. That that's goes beautiful. right along with what you just said. Okay, and now the yeah, myth. Yeah. One of the greatest myths that I've heard a lot in my lifetime, I'm I'm sure a lot of people have, is that love's a two-way street. Love is not a two-way street. It is one way. It is on you, period. You don't control anybody. So you don't control love coming to you. But you don't control anybody. You only control yourself. When you have a baby, you bring the baby home from the hospital and you have 100% control. You decide when the baby eats, what the baby wears, when you put the baby down for a nap. But Six, seven, eight months later, your Tupperware is all over your kitchen floor. Pots and pans are banging like crazy. You realize you've lost control. And I promise you, you will never get it back again. Because we don't control anybody but ourselves. And so if you're giving love to get love, you are setting yourself up for heartache and disappointment and loneliness. It's not the way to love. When you give love to get love, it's like me giving you money and you giving me a pair of jeans. That's a transaction. If I'm giving love to get love, that's a transaction. That is not love. Love is not a transaction. Love is on you. You love. Love is magical in a way that when you give love, chances are pretty darn good. It's going to come back to you, but it might not come back exactly the way you picture it. And if you have these built-in expectations, about how love should come back to you, you, you're going to be fighting all the time with whoever it is or mad all the time, you know, because people don't read minds. They're not going to know your expectations. And people have all walked in different shoes. And so we all come from different places with different things that have made us who we are today. And you build all that in, and then you throw expectations on top of it and what you expect their love to look like. You're just setting yourself up for disaster. Just love. Love just loves with no expectations of getting it back. It's, it is a one-way street. I'm thinking a lot as you're talking this particular area regarding people with adult children who have been estranged. Can you address that at all? Is- oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, anyone who has adult children that are estranged, you're not alone because there are a lot of mamas and dads out there that their kids have a child who is not in their life, who's not communicating with them. And uh, part of it is they don't understand what love is, you know, because we've we've grown up with this other Mm -hmm. definition of love, right? So they don't understand. And um, I'm actually writing a book right now on 
um, the ways that my kids tell me I screwed up and, you know, what they would do differently. Because, you know, I don't know if it's 100% of parents, but a lot of parents, the kids come back at late 20s, you know, somewhere around there and tell you what a terrible job you did or different ways you messed up. And, and it's like, you know, as parents, we do what we do in the moment because we believe that's the right thing to do. We're not trying to hurt our kids, but anybody right. I think can look back and go, gosh, you know, if I had it to do over again, I might've done that differently. But in the moment, you knew what you knew, you had whatever it was to work with, and you made the decisions and the choices that you made that you believed were best for your kids. And kids need to understand that, that parents, that's what we do. That's, that's what we do is we try to do everything we can in our power that is the right thing for our kids. And yes, we will mess up. It's just the way it is. And I think kids need to be a bit more forgiving and parents need to be forgiving because it is hurtful. It's, I've gone through it. It's hurtful when your kids come back to you and tell you, oh my gosh, remember when you did this or now yeah, you did that, you know, and why'd you send us to that school? That's a big one for my kids. Why'd you send us to that school? And I just, I, I own it. I own everything they say. I, and I apologize. And I, I just say, you know, we made the decisions we made because we thought they were the best ones at that time. With what we knew, they were the best ones at that time. Not to say I'd do it now, but that's why we did it. Not to harm you, you know, but because we loved you. And uh, so there are going to be people that walk out of your life. That doesn't mean you stop loving them. Right. You, you can, Absolutely. Yeah. You can love people and not like them, for one thing. But but love your kids. You know, there there's uh, one of the things in that poem is um, love always hopes. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres is another one. Love always perseveres. Love always hopes. So even if you have a son or daughter with an addiction, that's that can be uh, such a tough issue, so hard. And um, I've experienced this. And and you just have to show some tough love. You got to figure out how to deal with it and uh, and not enable it. And that's a tough one. But love that always hopes and love that always protects would say that you love and and the way you're loving, the way you're protecting them is you're protecting them from uh, not from themselves or not from the alcohol or drugs. That's not what you're protecting them from. You're protecting them from uh, never getting hurt because people are going to get hurt. If you smother and you try to fix it, it's one thing to be supportive and love people through it. But if you try to fix it, they are the only ones that can fix it. No one can fix it for them. And uh, sometimes you see where parents just keep bringing them back, bringing them back, giving them money. They don't have a job, you know, bringing them back, bringing them back. Well, really, if you love them, there are times you have to say, buddy, you're on your own. I love you. Come on over for Sunday dinner. Give me a call every day. I don't care. But you're on your own because then they have to step up. Then it's it, because it's their decision anyway. You don't have control over them. And so sometimes it's okay to let people go. If you're in a relationship that is 
a bad relation that is hurting you, that is physically, emotionally damaging you, walk away. Love would say walk away. Because if you stay in a relationship like that, that means you are there enabling the person Absolutely. to stay in that behavior. They're not going to change their behavior because you're allowing it. Love would say walk away so that they can change their behavior if they want to. If they decide to, it's up to them. But walk away. You know, you don't have to stay because you said I do it and alter. You know, you don't have to stay. If if the relationship is bad, walk away. And, and it's the same really uh, with parents and kids. It's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. But the reality is there's relationships that are not healthy between parents and kids. If it's not healthy and you need to breathe for a minute and walk away, do it. it it's okay. It's, it's all right to do it for your sanity and so that they can take a look at themselves and see what they need to do to change. I am relating. I know the audience is relating. You have pushed a lot of buttons and you have been encouraging. You definitely have been inspiring, stimulating, and challenging big time. So this is a book, at books actually, that we all need to get. I can't express that more than that. I mean, both of your books are life-changing. Thank you, Kim, for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. You certainly have, have given me hope today, as I know you have for the audience, because many of us are relating to several of the things that you have said, and many of them have been eye-opening as far as I never looked at it quite that way before. So the year that you took off to write and reflect have definitely helped and will continue to help a lot of people. What you have learned and what you have shared today is, as you said at the top of the show, life-changing. Is there anything in conclusion, Kim, that you would like to share about anything? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that one of the greatest things you can do is is show mercy. You know, give give people some slack. You know, we we all make mistakes. We all do things that we regret. We all have moments that are we don't treasure. You know, we lose our cool. We do whatever we do, and um, just love people. Just you know, don't don't hold on to something that happened years ago. Don't don't hold on to it. Let it go. Let it go. You know, that that's one thing um, that I learned is love keeps no record of wrongs. I mean, it's a whole story by itself. And <laughs> but, but quickly to, to wrap it up is is all that means is that that you don't forget the things that happen to you. But the narrative changes, the mood of the story changes. So instead of, oh, my gosh, this rotten person that did this rotten thing to me, you're just like, well, this happened you know, whatever, because you get to pick that. You get to pick how you react to anything, anytime. And so it doesn't have to be something that you hold on to. Let it go. Let it go and give people some grace. Perfect. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. And thank you again for being on Never, Ever Give Up Hope. Thank you for listening to Never, Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. 
Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.